leftovers. Or the DMV. Or house cleaning. Or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. Welcome everyone to Duncan Dynasty. My name is Garrett Bouguet and alongside me is Anthony Brown. We're a couple of... Uh, basketball nerds, basketball junkies. First, uh, we're going to introduce ourselves to you. As far as, uh, as, far as I'm concerned, I, uh, I played basketball in high school at Finley High School in, in Northwest Ohio. I actually played uh, my junior year. I was on the roster of the Finley basketball team that made the Elite Eight of states in the state of Ohio. So, um, you know, I saw firsthand how, you know, pretty good high school basketball was played. My senior year, I ended up starting for the team after, you know, most of those guys on that Elite Eight team graduated. Right, right. So I got to, uh, I got to experience uh, basketball and play at a pretty high-level Division One high school. And uh, I ended up tearing my ACL uh, right after my senior year and wasn't able to pursue a college career. But, uh, you know, I've always loved the game. Uh, I've been really passionate about it. Um, I... Uh, for an extended period of time, I was a huge Cavs fan in the NBA. I've watched a ton of LeBron James games over the years. I've also been to quite a few of uh, you know his best performances. I went to um, Game 6 of the 2016 NBA oh, Finals. Right. Yeah. Uh, I went to, uh, in the 2009 Eastern Conference Finals against the Orlando Magic, I went to Game 2 where he hit the game winner. Uh, uh, that beat the Magic. I went to Game 6 of the 2007 Eastern Conference Finals when they beat the Pistons and got to their first ever NBA Finals, which was a pretty big deal. So, you know, I've been to a lot of his games over the years, but more recently I've just been like, you know, a general NBA fan. I watch, you know, two to three games every night during the course of the NBA regular <laughs> season. I've got, you know, quite a collection of old <laughs> basketball games as well. Uh, so, you know, I, I love the league. I've always been a big fan, and um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it for me in terms of uh, my basketball experience. How about you? Yeah. Um, so my name's Anthony Brown. Uh, yeah, I like you. Started playing basketball when I was really, really young. I played it my whole life. It's always been my favorite sport. Played in high school at Tiffin Columbian, all four years, and I actually walked on at Ohio Northern. I was playing football and did that all four years, but. My first two years, I also played basketball. I was on the JV roster and, uh, you know, I dressed a little bit on varsity my freshman year. Um, like you, I've been pretty obsessed about basketball my whole life, too. When we met, we were roommates um, senior year of college, and I was embarking on this mission to watch as many um Michael Jordan <laughs> yes. Bulls games as I possibly could. I knew we would hit it off as soon as I saw that. I, I figured that was 
you know, might as well put that in the intro. Um, so needless to say, I've watched a lot of, uh, of basketball games over the years. We've had a lot of really interesting, in-depth discussions about basketball and um, different basketball books like Bill Simmons' Book of Basketball and all that stuff. And uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, all the different awesome basketball discussions we have that's really uh, that transitions well into you know talking about this podcast that we're starting here called Duncan Dynasty and really our goal is to uh, let you guys in on what a couple of basketball junkies having a discussion <laughs> is all about what we talk about what we think about um, you know I feel like we're both very knowledgeable in this sport and we're both very passionate about it and um, not only that but we're also really good friends we get along really well yeah. um, this this to me sounds like something not only that would be, you know, hopefully um, very entertaining for you guys to listen to, but also fun for us to do yeah. uh, as well. Um, but so uh, without further ado, we're going to get into our uh, topic for this first episode. And the topic uh, that I thought would be a really interesting one to discuss is, mm -hmm. you know, how the sport of basketball has changed uh, from, you know, when we probably started watching, like, you know, the games from the 1980s, you know, right. the Magic Johnson versus Larry Bird matchups, mm -hmm. um, and how it has progressed through the 90s, you know, the Michael Jordan era, the 2000s, you know, where the game got really defensive and physical, <laughs> um, to then through, like, the Steve Nash seven seconds yeah. or less Phoenix Suns in the late 2000s, um, all the way to now where, you know, we've both watched... Uh, the the most recent NBA Finals between the Golden State Warriors and Cleveland Cavaliers, where the the scores was like 130 to 115. You know, yeah. it's, uh, um, the game has changed pretty drastically. Um, but w what are some things that uh, you notice about how the game has has kind of changed? Well, uh, specifically with this era, there is a huge focus on the three point line, um, where uh, we've talked about before how. The three-point line gets introduced, when is it, 1981? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when it first comes out, there are a few players that are, you know, are decent at it. There are the Larry Birds who are able right. to, like, pick it up, which is amazing to go through your whole career not shooting threes and to be that good. Um, but even but, he, like, when he first yeah. started was making... I don't know, like 53s a season in those right. first couple of years. Right. That's nowhere near the kind of volume you see today. Exactly. But certainly he was one of the more prolific ones. Right. Um, and you see throughout the, the 90s, people start taking him a little bit more. There's some specialists like the Steve Kerrs of the, the world um, or, you know, the, the, Mark, the Mark Prices who are, you know, really good at that shot and use that as a weapon. But now it's a whole nother level, you know, the... Uh, you were telling me about the Rockets and obviously the Golden State Warriors that are, you know, not only taking a huge amount of threes, but making a huge amount of threes. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be interested in what the stat is of, you know, Steph Curry alone with his volume of shots and makes versus, you know, maybe an entire team's. Oh, yeah. You know, he, it's already game. been talked about. Yeah, he, he's made more threes in the last couple of years than, yeah, entire teams, even in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he just takes so many. and. Yeah. Another thing I feel like is is different about the Steph Curry's of the world as opposed to, you know, you mentioned Mark Price, which is a great example. He was mm -hmm. one of the first guys I feel like that would take those off the dribble threes. Right. You know, and nobody really spot. did that. John Stockton I think also yeah. did that a little bit. Um, but that's so much more prevalent now. You see your Damian Lillards of the Portland Trailblazers mm -hmm. do it. Steph Curry obviously, um, even Kyrie Irving does it some. 
but you've got so many more guys that are able to shoot successfully off the dribble, which allows them to, you know, have that volume. You know, if you're only taking wide-open catch-and-shoot threes, right. there's only so many opportunities that that happens throughout the course of the game. But, yeah, uh, the three-point shot definitely... Um, has changed, and, and that's really changed the way defense is played as well. You know, yeah. I feel like in the '80s, you watch those, you watch again those Lakers-Celtics games, mm-hmm. how packed the defense is in the middle exactly. of the paint, be, and they basically let people walk into a 20-foot jump shot <laughs> right. because there weren't that many people that were reliably able to make that. Exactly, um, and also I, I'm obsessed with all the great centers of you know. Of all the eras, and so specifically with that matchup, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right? We don't see any Kareems nowadays because that's changed a lot because of the three-point line, mm-hmm. right? You can have a, a dominant center inside, but if they're not maybe as mobile and they're guarding a guy who's able to hit threes from the corner all game, that ends up sometimes being a liability, right? right. That three-point versus the two-point. Um, and yeah, like you said, it was super packed in versus now it's... Um, now that it is more spread out, it gives more lanes for people to, to cut to get to the basket and more layups and, and dunks and all that. When you talk about defense, like, yeah, a guy like Kareem, obviously he'd still be super effective exactly. offensively yeah. um, because he's a more dominant post-up player than anyone that's currently in the league. <laughs> right. But at the same time, you know, when he goes down to the other end, like if he were playing the Warriors, you know, right. they would put Kareem in pick and roll and have him guard the Steph Curry 25 feet from the basket and that would be quite the challenge for him exactly and it's a challenge for all defensive players because the amount of ground you have to cover (laughs) is so much more intense because you've got guys like J.R. Smith and even like Ryan Anderson for Houston who Mm -hmm. can shoot from like 20 feet 28 feet (laughs) you know like five feet behind the three-point line so you've got to extend even further right Uh, so that just makes it that much more challenging and and that much more difficult to be a defensive player. Exactly. And in that era where, I mean, shot blocking and protecting the rim was a huge part of defense and, and the strategy, you know, pulling out a career, it's hard to, you know, I don't want to be too harsh on the great centers and say like, wow, it'd be a real liability to have a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. I don't think it's ever a liability. But, um, you know, if he's guarding Ryan Anderson 28 feet from the rim, he's not going to be able to block shots like he used to. Right. And so maybe a Steph Curry who's able to, I mean, there are other rule changes and stuff, but able to get to the rim, maybe some layups wouldn't have been able to get had there been a person like Kareem there in the middle. So, um, yeah, another one of those big changes. It's still fascinating both of these eras because there's some amazing teams in both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah. But, yeah, and the other challenge, too, is because you've got so many more um, responsibilities defensively right. guarding on the perimeter that limits the amount of big men that are capable of being on the floor defensively. Right. You know, you've got so many guys that are just liabilities now because mm-hmm. they can't move their feet that well. And even though they're terrific post-up players, you know, they can score <laughs> right. um, really well. They can't, um, you know, their negatives outweigh their positives because they're constantly being attacked on the other end. Right. Um, that, yeah. Which is an interesting thing to th- talk about in terms of like if you're if you're talking about coaching from like you know the 1980s yeah. to now one of the things i've noticed that's a big difference is you know i feel like you know you talk about your phil jacksons in the mm-hmm. 90s with the chicago bulls and obviously later in the 2000s with the lakers right. um you know he had some great players and really you know he he ran a triangle offense but 
a big part of that triangle offense was having your guard at the elbow and your big man on the post mm-hmm. and getting them the ball and letting them go to work. You right. know, it was very much just simply let your best players be your best players. But it's a little bit tougher now um, because it's easier to double team. You know, yeah. because the rule changes where you used to have the illegal defense, mm-hmm. now you have the defensive three-second rule. Right. But also because you have so many more quicker players on the floor, you can double can and scramble. Yeah. Yes. So that's the other thing I think is interesting about coaching is you didn't have to, like Phil Jackson didn't have to worry about like, okay, if they're doubling Michael, what's our plan B? Right. You know, there wasn't, that, that wasn't <laughs> right. an issue. Exactly. Um, Whereas now it's it's a lot like who's your weakest link on both ends of the floor and how do we attack that? Right. You know, like with the when the Cavs beat the Warriors in the twenty sixteen finals, it was very much like, Okay, Steph Curry is their weakest defensive player, mm-hmm. so we're going to get LeBron James or Kyrie Irving guarded by Steph Curry and let them attack. That's that's a really interesting, I think, development in terms of you know how how the coaching aspect of the game has changed. Definitely, um, I mean this era. I feel like pick and rolls are, you know, the pretty much the go to now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we talked before about you know the Mark Prices and the John Stocktons of the world who, you know, that was one of their main things back in the day too. So it's not like they didn't do that in the '90s and '80s before. But I mean, you see now where like uh, Steve Nash, it's like you know he's doing a pick and roll. If they don't get it, he backs it out and he's doing it again. Right. You know, and we're just going to keep hitting it, and depending on what the defense does, like you were saying, however they play it, we're going to have an answer for that, whether it's a three-point shot here or you know a cut there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it is it is really interesting. Well, and going back to the weakest link, like that also, not only do teams attack your weakest link defensively, like I mentioned with Steph Curry in the in the 2016 Finals, but also you know the Cavs tried to attack in that same finals the weakest link for the Warriors offensively mm-hmm. and in those last few games it was Harrison Barnes where oh, that's right. they put Tristan Thompson on Harrison Barnes and mm-hmm. allowed him to take wide open shots and he just went ice cold for the last four games of that series and, yeah. or three games of that series uh, that allowed the Cavs to come back but it's interesting to see you know on both ends of the floor teams take advantage of that Speaking of John Stockton, though, you mentioned, mm-hmm. what do you think the role of the point guard, how the role of the point mm. guard has changed? Because John Stockton certainly was a capable scorer. Oh, totally. But he mo- more often than not chose to defer from the scoring burden, and obviously having Carmelo Malone helps with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, For sure. Uh, but I feel like if John Stockton played in today's game, he would be a lot more aggressive to get his own shots. Yeah, I agree. I think he would be expected to, to score a lot more. I think... Um, we saw like from the nineties on, um, uh, an emphasis on guard scoring where there wasn't that before. And I think <laughs> maybe we should put a counter on this. This will be the second Jordan reference, but you see, <laughs> you see how, uh, many, uh, you know, since the, uh, after that, you see the Kobe Bryant's, the Tracy McGrady's, these perimeter scorers that are taking the 20 foot jumpers or threes and taking people off the dribble. And I feel like that's, has kind of migrated to the point guard position where people like say Isaiah Thomas or whatever people who could score but that wasn't their first look now it's just changed I think where uh, maybe with a few exceptions like Chris Ball being one of those Mm -hmm. um, who are still looking past first but can score 
I think a lot of them, you said Damian Lillard or Steph Curry, if they've got an open shot or an open lane to the basket, they're going to take it. The Derrick Rose is, you know, when he's healthy, mm-hmm. you know, dude scoring 30-plus points or uh, Isaiah Thomas from the Celtics. Uh, and now on the Cavs. And now on the Cavs, right? <laughs> yeah. I have to I have to remind myself that. That's going to be a big part of this, too, is <laughs> Garrett <laughs> updating me on all the new uh, new stuff. Right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the the mentioning of Chris Paul is an interesting point because he, he kind of feels like a dying breed as far as yeah. that's concerned of the guys that are, you know, more of the leader, more of the captain. And yeah, mm-hmm. Isaiah Thomas is a perfect example. You know, he, um, you know, early in his career, he like Isaiah Thomas put up like huge numbers, you know, mm-hmm. he could score their ball. He's yeah, a great sure. player. Yeah. Um, but like when it came to winning the championships, he realized like, Focusing on defense, focusing on getting his teammates better looks and making right. his teammates better was the best chance for him to win. You know, yeah, you just don't see a lot of that anymore. But also, you know, going back to the whole not having as many like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar dominant post players, mm-hmm. not only because, you know, big guys have to be able to stay on the floor defensively, but also when you have all these scoring point guards <laughs> that are focusing on getting their shot, there's less touches for right. those big men down low. Right. They can't get the ball unless they're past the ball down there. Right. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, uh, what are some other like rule changes you feel have kind of affected um, the way the game has played? Obviously, one of the big talking points is the hand checking, where you've got you know <laughs> Michael Jordan. People are saying, well, if Michael Jordan didn't have hand checking, he would do such and such. What do you... I mean, again, third Michael Jordan reference. Third, right. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Just have a counter in the, the corner of it. For, yeah, Michael Jordan's an interesting person to look at for hand-checking specifically because coming in in, like, 85, where you still have hand-checking, and then about that, I, I'm not a, a 100% sure, but mid-90s, they start to relax some of those rules, and by the end of his career, they've, you know, it, the floodgates are kind of open, and... Um, like literally like Allen Iverson is able to just blow past people without anyone putting hands on each other. But yeah, the hand check rule of essentially the, you could play defense a little bit more like a defensive back where it wasn't just your lateral quickness. You could, you know, use a forearm or use your hands to slow the guy down. Right. Which, uh, I mean, it's hard to say the, the point guards of today are so ridiculously quick I think in any era, Steph Curry would be able to get to the basket. Yeah. Or the Kyrie and Irving. their handle, you know. Yeah. They're, they're so good with their dribbling skills as well. And and that's obviously improved and, and gotten more complex as uh, time's going on. But, yeah, I, I can't help but think that that would have been a factor, um, you know, with, say, an Allen Iverson or Steph Curry or Kyrie Irving, um, a quick defender who can also get their hands on the guy is going to slow him down a step and that might be the difference between a wide open layup or someone being able to help off and you know force them to take a shot they don't want to take. Right. Um, Michael Jordan specifically is one that like, you know, you need all the help that you can get for that type of scorer who's mm-hmm. been able to slash and you know pull up for a jump shot. And if you can't put your hands on him at all, I think it's a free reign of uh, it'd be a lot like a Russell Westbrook. I think of. Um, a young Michael Jordan would be free reign of able to get to the basket of any time he wanted to and also pull up mid-range and I think it'd be it'd be fun to watch I was gonna say scary but it'd be fun for me because I'm a huge Jordan fan so yeah um (laughs) considering yeah we are talking about like you know how 
the old school NBA relates to you know the current um, league. I think one of the interesting talking points is yeah, like how some of those older players would fit in today's game and vice versa. Right. Because you've got um, a lot of people that watch today's game that are either young or haven't um, devoted a lot of time to watching the the older players. Right. Um, there's a lot of people that you know. And we'll we'll do this topic on some other episode that are um, yeah. they're already anointing LeBron as better than Michael Jordan. But I just want to set the record straight that both of us believe that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. Yes. Um, and if he were playing in today's game, I feel like he would be doing pretty much what. Well, and I guess it depends what version of Michael Jordan you right. have. Um, but like the. Um, the mid to late 80s and even early 90s Michael Jordan, to me, is essentially Russell Westbrook with a much more reliable jump shot and post game. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And Russell Westbrook just, you know, obviously finished his first MVP (laughs) campaign, averaged 30-plus points, and had a triple-double. Insane, yeah. uh, You know, Michael Jordan had that run in, I believe it was the late 80s where the coach put him at point guard for a period of time and he had yes. like 10 or 11 consecutive triple doubles. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to think, yeah. you know, what kind of, what do you feel like his ceiling is in terms of what numbers he would put up if he was playing in today's game? Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Um, we're already getting into it. Um, <laughs> got really excited there. Is So yeah, it, it depends on what version. If we're taking... Um, because that could be a longer podcast to say like what if Jordan grew up in this era mm-hmm. and still had the same drive and everything but learned to shoot a three you know and had that before 1981 but yeah if you just implant you know take him growing up in the 80s or growing up in the 70s or whatever and then put him in 1985 I think exactly like you said he's going to be doing a lot of the same things um I mean, anyone who's able to put up 63 points on one of the greatest teams of all time with the 1986 Celtics, I have no doubt, regardless of the defense, yeah, whether it's zone or whatever, or illegal defense, he's going to be able to get to the basket and, like Russell Westbrook, get a lot of fouls and a lot of foul shots. And Yeah. Yeah, that 86 series you're referring to, the Jordan versus the Celtics first round, where Jordan, I believe, for the they got swept in three games right. because the Celtics had a much better team, <laughs> right. and Jordan was really the only person that was good at basketball in the Chicago Bulls at that time. <laughs> um, you, you had uh, Dave Corzine, who, <laughs> who had a, like, I think his only Who, speaking of guys was... who could not play in today's game, the <laughs> Dave oh Cor- Corzine. He, he could shoot a, like, 18-foot jump shot from the top of the key, and if you think of it like NBA 2K or whatever, like he had maybe an 80 attribute on his top of the key jumper and then like a 60 or 50 or 40 on literally everything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not a, not a lot of help on that team. Uh, and that's that's another thing. Again, we won't get into that today probably, but in com- if we were to compare James and Jordan, one thing that gets to me is when people are like, well, LeBron didn't have help. I'm like, of most of the greatest players of all time, I think Jordan and LeBron stand out in that they had almost no help early <laughs> especially, on. Especially, yeah, especially the first five or six years of their career. Right, so that um, comparison is kind of like moot in my mind. They're both, they both didn't have a lot of help and they both did amazing things. 
But in the, so. in the same way, we both feel that, and I agree with you in terms of Jordan would be pretty dominant in today's <laughs> game, uh, I Safe feel like say. if you put LeBron in a time <laughs> machine and put him back in the 1980s, he would be absolutely dominant. Right. In large part because just his size and power, you know, especially in a, at a time where it was very difficult to double team. Oh, yeah. You know, um, he would either be either way too big for somebody or way too quick. Right. Uh, and most of the time, both. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. And, yeah, teams, again, without the ability to effectively double team, would have a really difficult time dealing with him. Right. Especially with, again, if you take him from today and put him in, in that era, he would be the best three-point shooter in the league by far. <laughs> um, it would make it really, really hard to, uh, to, to guard him. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, like, you know, super hard to guard Larry Bird, who's a six nine small forward who can shoot from forever away from the basket. But then also add in crazy athletics, uh, athleticism of driving, um, passing ability of like a, a Magic Johnson. It it would be scary in, yeah. in any era, and it's hard always to to compare eras. But yeah, LeBron would in any era destroy people. Yes. Um. <laughs> Going more into, like, um, skill sets and things, um, you know, we talked about, obviously, how shooting off the dribble has become a lot more prevalent in today's game. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we talked about how big men in general um, don't need to post up as much anymore. Like, you know, you you look at a guy like Tristan Thompson, you look Mm -hmm. at a guy on Houston like Clint Capella, these are centers that are, um, you know very quick, very agile, they can defend on the perimeter, and offensively, really don't have any skill whatsoever. <laughs> you know, Thompson has has struggled throughout his career to right. make a free throw, and Capella is, is the right or same. left-handed? So, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a, a long discussion. Like, I remember his foul <laughs> shooting. So he started, uh, he started shooting left-handed in the league, yeah. and um, I believe he's ambidextrous. Okay. So... As far as I'm aware, he chose the wrong hand to shoot with from the get-go. Okay. And so spent most of his, um, you know, from the age of whenever he started playing till about 20, shooting with the wrong hand. Right. And then he switched. And at first, it looked like the switch to the right hand was going to be pretty positive. He got up, I think, one season he was close to 70%. Okay. But then immediately just forgot how to shoot with his right hand as well. And now <laughs> okay. he's back into like the 50-60% range. What's the opposite of, not the opposite, but like whatever, ambidextrous is both hands, what's no hands? Oh, yeah. I don't know if there is a <laughs> He's got that, no but... dominant hand. They're both equally <laughs> terrible. Right. Um, but yeah... Uh, you know, he can't shoot. He can't really dribble that effectively. He doesn't yeah. have a post-up game for the most part, and neither does Capella. Mm-hmm. But these guys, more of these types of players are finding themselves in the starting lineups of these teams because they can do two things. They can play defense. You know, they're, um, you know if, they, if you switch Tristan Thompson onto a point guard, obviously it's going to be a mismatch, but it's not, it's not one that's a giant mismatch. Right. You know, like he can somewhat handle his own. Right, right. Um, but then also on the offensive end, he can be the rim runner, where he sets the screen and runs to the rim and catches lobs. You know, and as long as you're athletic, you can jump and catch the ball and dunk it. Right. You know, it's not really a skill set, but <laughs> um, in the modern NBA offenses where you've got four three point shooters, right. that player is really valuable because it forces the defense to collapse and opens up those shots. Yeah. And if they 
if they stick to the shooters, you know, he's going to have dunk after dunk, or <laughs> either you're going to have to do that or foul him. Right. Um, but you're seeing more and more of those guys, those centers that aren't very skilled but are super athletic, um, dominate the league center position now. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that goes back to what we were talking about before with uh, with play calling and the three-point line. Because uh, I, I think the basic philosophy for most of the history of basketball was getting a high percentage shot. And when you didn't have a three-point line or a bunch of really, really dominant three-point shooters, um, you get a really big, tall, hopefully strong guy to put the ball in the basket for you. And if mm-hmm. you happen to have a skilled one, right, uh, not just like, uh, you know, I don't know why Manute Bull popped in my head, where like, <laughs> yeah, defensive stopper, but not doing a whole lot on the offensive end. If you get one like a Kareem or a Shaq or a Keem or, you know, these dominant centers that are not only skilled, but super big and tall, then you basically have a championship contender right off the bat because mm-hmm. that's high percentage shots. That's a, um, a guaranteed double team. Like if you don't double team Shaq, he's going to dunk it on you every single play. And again, or, double teams in that era resulted in one pass, wide open three. Exactly, exactly. With the illegal defense rule, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't play both of them. You couldn't, you know, run halfway, act like you're going to guard Shaq and then run back to your guy. You had to pick one. Right. Um, or they end up getting foul shots, the technical foul. So yeah, like, rule changes with that, it kind of makes it harder... Um, when people can double team at will, you can just run around. And um, I think of with Shaq on the Orlando Magic team specifically, where, yeah, at Shaq, there's a legal defense and you surround him with shooters. It's like, get it to Shaq if they double team, you're passing it to Nick Anderson, to Penny, or to, uh, what's his name, Dennis Scott. Yes. And it's just a three-pointer. Like And Horace Grant <laughs> was even a really good mid-range shooter. Exactly. For a power forward. Yeah. And so that's that's a really good look, I think, into... A similar offensive philosophy in that sense of, you know, surrounding a score with shooters, but how that manifests itself in, you know, in the 90s versus today. Right? Yeah. Because today you look at the Warriors, it's a similar concept with surrounding with threes, but obviously they do it a lot differently. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and yeah, the Warriors don't, again, don't have, I guess David West would be. Um, one counterexample of a center that's you know mm-hmm. got some skills, but right. for the most part, like JaVale McGee and Zaza Pachulia, they're out there just to bruise. Uh, they don't uh, have much of a jump shot or a post right. game. But those they're, lobs, like you were saying. Especially with JaVale McGee, right. and Pachulia's there because he's a good screen setter, good rebounder, gives them that toughness. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the same way, you know, you have... You know, I feel like big men don't have to be as skilled in today's game right. as they used to be. I feel like guards even have to be more skilled mm-hmm. because, you know, we talked earlier about the mismatch basketball and how that's prevalent in today's game. Uh, for instance, if Clay Thompson for the Warriors, uh, if he sets a screen for Steph Curry and mm-hmm. the Cavs switch that and it's yeah. J.R. Smith guarding... Um, uh, Steph Curry and Kyrie Irving guarding Clay Thompson. Yeah. Now all of a sudden they can throw the ball to Clay Thompson and let Clay Thompson post up, yeah, and attack Kyrie Irving, who's a much smaller, shorter player than he is. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden, to to play mismatch basketball, your guards not only have to be able to shoot and attack off the dribble, but now posting up is more prevalent for the guard position right. than it was, 
you know, in the 90s or 80s or any time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and like we were saying before, it's defensively, you know, again, not calling Kareem a liability, but... Um, well, and especially, you know, we, we keep talking <laughs> about Kareem and, you know, for all of these great players, they have different um, portions of their career. Like early exactly. Kareem was a oh. lot more athletic and able to move his exactly. feet and handle himself on the perimeter. Oh yeah. Whereas he's like, one of the greatest players to ever play and regardless I, of the era, like he dominates. Yeah. When I talk about Kareem as a possible liability, I'm thinking like late eighties with exactly. the Lakers where he was much older and not quite as good defensively. Right. But, but probably yeah, sorry, should, should clarify for any, like, <laughs> yeah. I thought you guys said you were fans. You don't know about the bucks. And all that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, um, yeah, again, like, if you have the the big, tall, strong, skilled guy, that's a championship every single time. Now, if if that's at all, not, maybe not a liability, but if that hurts your defense in a way to have someone who's not as agile and can't guard as many positions, then, you know, you can't have them on the floor, and so a Clay Thompson has to be, you know, because um, it's still a good, it's an effective strategy to have post-ups. Yeah. to get a good high percentage two-point shot. Because um, it's still at this point, we're still in a league where it's more, um, it's a higher percentage shot to shoot a two versus a three. Mm-hmm. The trajectory, though, does look like it may be uh, at some point better to just chuck up threes. Well, that's the Houston shooting. strategy is exactly. like if you shoot, if you take, um, you know, if you hit 33% of your threes, considering it's worth an additional point, right. every two threes you make, that's like making three twos. Right. So if you shoot 33%, essentially that's like shooting 50% from two. Right. Um, but, but yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting segue into, you know, um, the, just in terms of watching the game and how enjoyable it is to watch, a lot of people are kind of annoyed at the Houston Rocket model hmm. in terms of it's all free throws and all three-point shots, and it makes the game kind of stale. You know, yeah. there's not that variety. Hmm. Um, whereas when you've got post-ups, you've got guys taking mid-range shots and threes and free throws, you know, that makes it a better viewing experience. Yeah. I certainly agree with that, but I definitely understand why Houston... Um, goes that direction what do, what do you think about just in terms of the aesthetics and how enjoyable it is to watch today's game versus those games in like the 80s and 90s yeah uh i mean i should probably preface it with saying i haven't watched uh anywhere near as much yeah. <laughs> current uh nba as, as you have um but yeah i I'm, i guess i'm kind of old school with it i do like the the 80s and 90s um style of basketball where you're pounding it inside and you know, these great players are putting up these, you know, great performances and stuff, but less from the three-point line. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think anytime there's... People don't like change, right? <laughs> so anytime that there's a change in an era, people are going to be like, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that, you know, players aren't, you know, like I said, a set shot before, you know, set shot was just better. Like, no, fadeaways works just fine, too. I think Kobe was pretty good with that. Yeah. Um I wouldn't be surprised if big men make a comeback because, like I said, posting up still is effective. So say you have a guy who, like now, we've got uh, big centers, maybe the Ryan Andersons who can shoot from really far away. Um, and you've talked to me about Carl Anthony uh, uh, Towns, Towns from Minnesota. yeah. Right. So like, what if we get more big post guys who can dominate down low but can also shoot three right and then maybe have that javel mcgee type athleticism to be able to 
you know, be out on the perimeter and inside. I think that That's might a be scary a scary player. Right exactly. <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised of just the evolution of the game. Uh, if we have someone who's like that, you know, say Hakeem Elijah one, but learned how to shoot uh, threes at a mm-hmm. young age, scary. Yeah. Um, and so that might be the answer to the Houston model of just throwing up threes. And then we do have that variety as well. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that though? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting discussion. I think, um, you know, I don't think the league is ever going to get to the point where, like, all 30 teams are playing like the Houston Rockets. Yeah. Because, well, in, um, uh, you know, this past playoffs, you know, you had the Houston Rockets. They ended up losing to the San Antonio Spurs in the conference semifinals. Right. And a big thing the Spurs implemented to slow down that Houston model of threes and layups and free throws was um, whenever... Uh, Houston ran a pick and roll with, let's say, Capella and Harden mm-hmm. at the top of the key. The Spurs would go over the screen so that the the man guarding Harden would prevent the three point shot, right. which would force Harden to then come into the paint. But then the big man guarding Capella, since he knows Harden is not going to want to take a mid range shot, uh, and Houston doesn't, he just keeps backpedaling and backpedaling all the way to the hoop right. and prevents that layup. And also, you know, the Spurs are one of the few teams in the league that are so disciplined because they're <laughs> extremely well coached that they don't foul either, you know, and, you know, Harden is the guy that really is great at drawing fouls by sticking his arms out and all that, <laughs> but Popovich's strategy and message to his team was just keep your arms straight up, act yeah. like you're being arrested, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> right, and then they um, can't call a foul, yeah. And so that strategy worked, and Houston, like, you know, one of the more prolific offenses in the league during the regular season really struggled in that series. Right even though they had a couple of games where they played really well. So there are ways to attack teams that just try for threes and layups, you know, just the most efficient shots. That's why I feel like the mid-range game is never going to completely go away because that helps you be more effective against the best defenses when they're locked in. You know, in a playoff series, when the teams are focusing on what you do well, they're going to try to make you do the things you don't want to do. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and with the eras and everything, I think there are fads in everything, right? I was talking to my brother the other day about like different nutrition plans and all of these fad diets that come in and out and which one's the right one. Mm-hmm. I think just like this, um, it's an effective strategy. Um, uh, analytics is the big thing now, right? With um, you're taking threes or layups and, or, and getting in the foul line, we don't want any mid-range shots. Right. Where... Um, fourth, fifth Michael Jordan reference, Jordan, um, you know, he would destroy teams off, off of that mid-range shot. And with the 90s and, and 80s, that was still considered a good shot to have, mm-hmm. like, you know, you would do a pick and roll and Magic would pass it to, like, Sam Perkins and he'd hit a 20-footer. And now it's like, oh, don't, why are you taking a 20-foot jump shot? Either go there or attack the basket. Right. Um, and we've talked before about uh, DeMar DeRozan, who I haven't really watched a lot, mm-hmm. but... You know, there are still players that can shoot a mid-range shot yeah. um, effectively. And, um, yeah, so it might be one of those where um, whoever's the best team, if they're really good at mid-range shots, maybe that'll come back. Yeah. You know, so. Well, and that's the interesting thing about the Houston Rockets because, you know, they just acquired Chris Paul this offseason. You know, Chris Paul has made a big portion of his career on making mid-range jump shots. He's one of the best in the league at that shot. So... It'll be really interesting to see. I feel like Chris Paul's going to win out because, um, you know, 
you talked about if you're really good at making a shot, it doesn't matter where on the floor it is. It's an efficient shot if you make right. a good percentage of them. Right. And Chris Paul has consistently made like 50 to even above 50% of his mid-range jumpers. So I have a hard time believing that the Houston Rockets, when they get a, qua- a player like that, are going to say, no, don't take that. <laughs> right. Because he's excellent at it. Right. And it would give them a little bit more diversity, which is why I think Houston is one of those teams that I think are going to get a lot better. I mean, not only because yeah. of just Chris Paul's greatness as a player, but also his ability to do one of the things that they're not exceptionally good at. Yeah. No, that is that is going to be really interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Another interesting development, obviously, as, as we move further and further into, um, you know, talking about the current game versus the old game, you know, the advances in science and medicine and mm-hmm. how that has extended the length of players' careers. Oh, yeah. You know, um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is one of the guys who was ahead of his time where he was doing yoga, you know, yeah, and which right. that... Training ex- with Bruce Lee and... <laughs> that, that extended his career, whereas a lot of guys like, you know, Larry Bird was a guy that basically had like 10 or 11 good seasons and then was basically out of the league. Charles Barkley is another one mm-hmm. that by the late 90s was done even though he came into the league you know in uh, 10 years prior to that <laughs> right um whereas now you've got a guy like lebron james and you even most recently the recently retired tim duncan where mm-hmm. in seasons like 17 and 18 he was still an extremely effective player lebron entering i think this is up upcoming season 14 for him yeah and he's still um you know he hasn't really shown much signs of slowing down there's rumors yeah. that he spends like a million dollars on his body every season. Oh my god! Um, wow. Uh, but it's interesting to think too, like when you're comparing players, uh, you know the advantages these guys have are significant to what the guys in the '80s and and even '90s had. Totally. Uh, I don't know if you've ever played or if you, do you own any Chuck Taylors, uh, like shoes. No. Never played. So I, I own a few pair. I, I think I'm, I wore my uh, black pair today. Um, and I've had a couple times where I've played basketball in those. Um, <laughs> and I think these might even be more comfortable than the old school ones that they were wearing in like the 70s or whatever. Uh-huh. They suck to play basketball in. It, <laughs> like, I got all these blisters. There's no cushioning. And just feel like you're clopping around on the floor. Yeah. And I think like, you know... The sneakers are like scientifically designed to each person's foot and like they've got all these like just that alone, I think, is a huge advantage. And that's just the shoes. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, On top of that, like you're saying, um, with advancements in in training and everything, there's a big push on managing minutes now, um, which is really interesting. Before it was like you play as many minutes as you can and then, you know. 10 years in the league, your knees give out, and that's it. Well, and that's the thing. Like, science has shown us through research that, um, you know, player fatigue leads to injuries. Right. You know, and so if you can prevent um, or at least limit that fatigue, players are going to be healthier for longer. Right. Um, which, uh, that's that does make me feel a certain way with the whole, um, you know, I feel like teams can kind of coast now during the regular season because, uh, like, the the Cavs kind of did you were talking about yeah. of they they know they're going to get one of the top seeds and then once they get to the playoffs as long as you make it they're healthy you've got an extremely good good shot to get to the finals again and that's the name of the game right because the home court advantage in the playoffs is just 
you get one additional excuse right. me home game and that's game seven mm-hmm. you know um but if you're significantly better than the opponent <laughs> that minor advantage doesn't matter exactly so yeah it's it, it's definitely a huge change and um with with lifting like um i remember okay again jordan or i could even go back to like wilt chamberlain he was way ahead of his time with with weightlifting um and was lifting with arnold schwarzenegger and stuff like that um where now like everyone does that that's like required as part of your training and nutrition um so you brought up charles barkley um i would imagine (laughs) that charles barkley wouldn't have had the weight problems and his weight fluctuations hence the nickname the round mound of rebound (laughs) the round mound of rebound and it's crazy how athletic and fast and quick he was when you see him in his jersey and there are times where he's just obviously super out of shape yes um where now everyone's got a personal chef everyone's got a nutrition plan Mm -hmm. um that is like perfectly designed to them i i think that would be an advantage to the charles barkley's of the world right yeah well and you not only the um you know the players the things the players do for themselves but how the team accommodates the players you know, I feel like the hotels they're staying in are significantly oh, yeah. better. You know, you're flying in first class as opposed to, you know, well, and you've got your own private planes, whereas they were flying in, in coach, you know, uh, in the yeah. old days. Um, uh, and also the value of what players know now in terms of sleep, you know, and making right. sure that you get a proper amount of sleep, um, yeah. but making sure your body is right in, in multiple ways. I remember this is football, but I want to say it was Terrell Owens was like it was some receiver. I want to say it was Terrell Owens was sleeping in a some oxygen chamber like there was it for sleep, right? To help with recovery. He was sleeping in this big contraption thing. It looked like a tanning bed, Um, but it was specifically designed to help him recover faster by having a certain atmosphere with his breathing. Yeah. Like, that is so much more advanced than what other people had. <laughs> right. Um, and recovering from injuries, I, I was talking the other day about Kobe Bryant. Um, when he had his knee surgery, they tried this new experimental um, thing where You're they... talking about his trip, his uh, his secret trips to Germany? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, where I'd heard they're, they're, were, they were taking blood out of his knee and like swirling it around or something and putting it back in i don't know the specifics of it this sounds super unscientific but um (laughs) essentially it was trying to lower the amount of um, inflammation in the knee Mm -hmm. which makes it recover faster yeah um where again back in the day in like the 80s in whatever sport if you tear your acl that's pretty much the end of your career well you think about a guy like bernard king who played on the new york knicks in the 80s um you know he was in that 1984 season he had a playoff run where he played the Pistons and beat Isaiah Thomas <laughs> and then took the Boston Celtics who ended up winning the championship to 7 games he was absolutely unstoppable and a lot of people don't really remember him too mm-hmm. much but he was you know I would consider him a better version of Carmelo Anthony when he was healthy mm. I like um, that comparison. Yeah, uh, he was that good, and he was a guy that would just had really good size, was an excellent mid range shooter, had an unstoppable fadeaway from the post. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he tore his ACL. Uh, I believe it was at near the start of the '85 season. Yeah, and it wasn't until like 1991 till he was able to be back to 
close to 100%. Right. And then, um, you know, he had another great season in 91 with, I think it was the Nets. Yeah. Um, but then, I believe oh, wow. he heard it again and was done. But, you know, you look at a, um, ACL injuries today, and a lot of guys have been successfully able to recover within a year and a half, really, and get yeah. back to themselves. Uh, and it's, it's just really unfortunate to think about all the careers that were <laughs> derailed because, you know, the... The surgeries and recovery timetables were so drastically different. We've talked a lot about um, one specific example of this that I think works really well is uh, Kevin McHale, um, right? They they come off of the 1986 season, one of the best seasons, one of the best teams of all time. Yeah. And I've heard Larry Bird is quoted in saying that he thought the 1987 team was their best team before the injuries yeah. and stuff. But um, Kevin McHale specifically plays uh, it breaks his foot right uh, maybe you I, should tell this story because of, of, <laughs> i think you know more about this one but. i believe it was um rick mahorn of the pistons okay um after he broke his foot in the playoffs repeatedly stepped oh, on wow. mikhail's foot and uh um mikhail being the competitive guy he was and considering the celtics were you know a title challenger mm-hmm. um yeah broke his foot and played through it um, Larry Bird also, I believe, had some back issues that season and played through it. Right. You know, this is also coming off the tragic death of Len Bias as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Simmons talks in his book of basketball about how if Len Bias was if. around, you know, Kevin McHale and Larry Bird would have been okay to rest the, after their injuries and get healthy because Bias could have filled in for their at their respective positions. Yeah. But yeah, you're right, you know, Kevin McHale playing through that injury, you know, was never quite the same after that. And neither was Larry Bird, really. Whereas, and, and a lot of that also comes down to your organization and your head, co- your coaching staff. And right. uh, for instance, I, I think a great example of the opposite approach was the 2000 San Antonio Spurs, mm-hmm. where in 1999, they won the championship, it was the... It was a shortened season in '99, right, and with the um, mm-hmm. yeah, because of the lockout, and they they won the title. They beat the Knicks. The following season, the Spurs had another great year. Uh, you know, you still had the twin towers of David Robinson and Tim Duncan. Um, they were, you know, one of the favorites to win the title again. But Duncan gets hurt. I'm trying to remember. It was either a foot or a knee injury. Okay, I can't um, remember. But uh, he could have come back and played in the playoffs. But Greg Popovich chose, and the Spurs organization chose to sit him out, make sure he was right. And right. I think it was the correct decision um, because, you know, he ended up having a really long, prosperous right. career. You know, we'll probably have an episode where we talk <laughs> about different what-ifs, and that's oh one gosh, of the yes. interesting ones where um, that sort of opened the door, that injury opened the door for the Lakers with Kobe and Shaq to oh, start wow. their three-peat. That's and the 2000 Lakers were very vulnerable. They went uh, in the first round, were uh, uh, taken to a decisive game by the Sacramento Kings, and then the conference yeah. finals to the decisive game against the Blazers, where they came back from 20 down or so in the fourth quarter. So they yeah. definitely weren't, you know, a super confident team that was guaranteed the title that first year. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but once you win the title, then that confidence sets in, and then, and they're then the like... 2001 team was one of the greatest playoff teams ever going right. 15 and 1 I believe yeah I think that's with right. the one loss to Allen Iverson and the Sixers when uh, <laughs> he scored like 50 points in the finals right. game 
Um, but yeah, uh, we'll we'll definitely do a, a what if podcast at uh, at some point for sure. One of the um, the biggest things I feel like um, that differs between you know the the players from the '80s and '90s to the players now, and you know Charles Barkley talks about this a lot on Inside the NBA and how he talks about how those players and at that time weren't really friends, yeah. you know, and that. The players today are now buddy buddy. <laughs> there was that uh, spat between Charles and uh, Barkley and LeBron James, where LeBron right. shot back and said, "Like you and Michael Jordan were, you know, best friends and all that." What's your take on on that whole thing and how you know players seem very friendly with each other, like handshakes and all of that stuff that they do before the game and um, you know in their off seasons they'll do workouts together. What what do you think about all that? Yeah, uh, I definitely there is a huge difference in with eras in in the kind of psychological approach that people take um they do kind of see each other as friends a lot more where i think before there was bad blood you could fight a lot more which i think that's a part of it that for the the safety of everyone for the league image they've probably tried to die you know um push that down that whole like be super competitive and want to fight people Mm -hmm. you can't have the bad boy pistons in today's nba right um but yeah, Jordan, so take Jordan and Charles Barkley's relationship. That never affected anything on the floor. Right. Um, Jordan would go at his friends even harder than usual yeah. <laughs> um, than he would with anyone else. Um, and I'm trying to think um, what exactly I want to go to with the whole having friends. I was thinking of Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas specifically. Oh, okay. Um, was it the finals where this happened? I want to say it's in the finals where um, they had this thing where, like, at the beginning of every game, if they're playing each other, they would kiss each other on the cheek, and then they would go to war with each other. Yeah. And I remember a certain sequence of plays where Magic Johnson does, like, one of the hardest fouls I've seen on Isaiah Thomas. I mean, yeah. he lays him out. And Magic Johnson is a six foot nine, very tall athletic point guard. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah Thomas is like, what, six foot, six one, yeah. and just gets laid out. And these guys are supposed to be best friends. And I think it actually hurt their friendship right. going on, from mm-hmm. what I've heard. But winning was the most important thing. And Magic was sending a message that I don't care who you are, I'm, it's, it's bad blood. We're going to war, like metaphorically. And now it's like, yeah, you know, we're friends. We're, we're just playing a fun game. This is my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting um, to talk about how fighting relates to the league and how, you know, in the in the 70s there was that whole, I think it was Kermit Washington uh, punched Rudy Tomjanovich <laughs> in the face uh, and, like, really messed Rudy Tomjanovich up. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, that was pretty normal. At that mm-hmm. time, you know, guys throwing punches, guys getting into brawls, you know, the benches clearing, you know, that was a big thing. It was closer to hockey, yeah. uh, you know, back then than it is now. <laughs> um, and I think the ratings suffered a little bit uh, right. because of that. You know, I'm thinking back in the 70s where you had the, and even in the early 80s, you had the tape delayed NBA Finals games. Mm-hmm. And not that we were old enough right. to experience that, but I've heard about that. Right. That's been, I think, the biggest reason why, you know, guys like David Stern and Adam Silver have really cracked down on the fighting element. Um, There was, of course, that big um, brawl in uh, 
Detroit with Ron Artest, where he was suspended for almost the entire season. Yeah. I feel like if that had happened like 20 years prior, he might have gotten a five-game suspension right. or something. <laughs> Would not have um, been severe. But they've definitely cleaned up the game, and I think that has led to it being more of a family-friendly product, which has certainly helped the ratings. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, they've also tamped... Uh, tampered down like the whole trash talking they give you a technical pretty much right, right away whereas there are so many great stories which we won't get into right here <laughs> right of larry, larry bird, bird great trash talking and obviously jordan best. was a great trash talker as well gary payton mm-hmm. um but you know you don't have as much of any of that and and to me that just dials down the competitiveness a little bit yeah. and players aren't as angry and feisty with each <laughs> other as they used to be Right, and and I I do think that was a part of the game. It always felt like a a big part of the game whenever I played, and maybe with you as well, but the psychological component of getting in someone else's head. Mm -hmm. I was never a trash talker, but I was a person that if someone, you know, talked trash to me, I would try and make sure they never talk trash to me again, (laughs) and I would go at them even harder. Right. Um, And where nowadays, because that's not as as much a part of the game i don't know if that's just competitiveness or toughness you know because i don't know what lebron does to people trash talking maybe regardless of the era he would be totally fine if someone trash talked to him and he would be just as mentally tough as a bird or jordan or whoever but because people don't do that as much i'm not really sure yeah i don't know i kind of like the the feistiness the mm-hmm. aggressiveness uh, of that but that was still, you brought up before, Mahorn stepping on um, Kevin McHale's foot when he's hurt. It's not... A lot more dirty players exactly. back in the day. And you think, like, today's dirty players, what would Draymond Green be considered a, a dirty player or a uh, one of those kind of Dennis Rodman-esque, right. you know, players where pick, any, pick Rodman or pick anyone else from that Pistons team... Um, Bill Lambeer is way more of a troublemaker <laughs> than anyone, I would say, in today's league. Exactly. Um, I don't want um, people to misinterpret. Like, we still think that today's sure. players are trying their hardest to win the game. Exactly. Like, I don't want to make people think we don't believe that. This past NBA Finals has been one of the greatest. <laughs> that was one of the greatest basketball exhibitions I've ever watched. You right. know, both teams going all out. So, yeah, I don't want to discount that. But at the same time, there is, um, you know, 18th Michael Jordan reference. (laughs) Uh, There's, you know, talk about how, and even in his retirement speech, or his Hall of Fame speech, I (laughs) should say, where he talked about how every slight against him he took so personally and did everything he could to embarrass the people that slighted him. That just, I feel like, adds another layer to the competition that you don't get in today's game. Right. And, and it might be a cultural thing that there is a big push today. And, and I think in, in some ways it is good. Uh, we're trying to get away from bullying. And, you know, in those old days, the the um, the stereotype of the jock was, you know, maybe a, a dumb guy, but also like a the bully of the school. Like he ran the school and he'd pick on the 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 people who might be a little more sensitive to that type of, trash talk or, or bullying and if you look at it from that lens i get why maybe lebron wouldn't want to be viewed as a michael jordan very spiteful um taking a guy from his high school team leroy whoever who you know 
got picked to play on the varsity team over Jordan. We'll get into that at some point of Jordan's just spitefulness. But he takes this guy who seemed like a nice guy and brought him to the Hall of Fame speech to basically be like, ha ha, screw you, I made it and you didn't. You know? <laughs> right. Like, and he didn't have any say on whether he got picked before Jordan or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a cultural thing. And also um, with being friends, these kids grow up in AAU basketball yeah, that's playing a big, on the same team. Yep, that's a big difference. And like Carmelo Anthony played on, was it Oak Hill? And they played against Akron St. Vincent a lot. I watched some of those games, which were really entertaining, crazy talent for a high school team. But when they were in high school, Carmelo and LeBron played against each other all the time, yeah. all throughout the nation. Mm-hmm. And the McDonald's All-American games, like a lot of them have been on teams together for... Uh, my cousin, uh, Aaron, actually was on a, a traveling team with LeBron at some point. And, you know, so just people from all over the country playing together, I think that's an element. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the AAU point is is a really good one because, yes, you've you've not only got the fact that um, you're playing against each other, but a lot of these guys teamed up. You know, for right. instance, Isaiah Thomas, yeah. who's just coming to the Cavs, he's reuniting with Kevin Love, who was his former AAU teammate. Oh, wow. Um, so you've got a lot of these guys that played together, you know, and traveled together and played games together and grew up together. Right. You know, so they've got these bonds that the older generation just didn't have. I think another interesting thing, um, too, is that, you know, as great as Michael Jordan was, um, in terms of being a well-rounded person, he's got a long way to go. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, I feel like these guys like LeBron and Kevin Durant, right. they're, um, you know, they've they've gotten into the political world. You know, mm-hmm. they've um, LeBron wants to is starting to get into like the movie and TV industry. <laughs> he's an executive producer on TV shows and things, mm-hmm. and um, they're starting businesses. You know, they're. They're more about um, life outside of basketball as right. well, and and being ready to um, for life post career, you know, right. than some of those older guys were. Which I think is a healthier um, perspective Definitely. to have on life, you know. As us two former basketball players very well know, like there is a life after basketball, yes. and you do have to figure out, like, okay, well, what else am I going to do? I can't just shoot. Uh, I can't get 100 or 500 makes of the basketball every single day of my life because I'm like 30 now mm-hmm. and, you know, there's other stuff to do. Right. Um, you, you brought up teaming up. Um, I think one of the things with this topic is, you know, that whole, that controversy with LeBron, the decision to leave Cleveland, mm-hmm. that idea of loyalty to a team. You know, uh, like Reggie Miller played on the same team with Indiana the Pacers for, I want to say his whole career for almost yep. 20 years. Mm-hmm. Never won a championship. Got close a few times, but never won. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, mm-hmm. a couple Same others. Team. Uh, Carl Malone, well, no, Carl Malone left at the very end. Uh, John Stockton yep. played on the, but I, I'm like thinking of, um, yeah, players today are worried about their legacy and understand that winning a championship by any means kind of gives you a little leg up against someone who didn't. And so they're willing to, to go all over the place to try and win that title where I think we did value the loyalty to a team before and and not just the loyalty to your team, but being aggressively against other teams. You know, it's us versus them and we're yes. going to fight them. Now it's like, this is a job. And yeah. I'm sure Kevin Durant, when he made the move to 
Golden State is like, well, would I rather stay in Oklahoma City or would I want to move to California, win a championship and, you know, or LeBron in South Beach? Like, yeah. South Beach seems like a cooler city to, than Cleveland. Sorry for Cleveland fans. I love Cleveland too. Right. But, um, but yeah, talking about <laughs> the whole like loyalty versus, yeah, the, the criticism of not winning a title. Like, of course, like, you know, guys like Carl Malone and John Stockton and Charles Barkley, those guys, and even Reggie Miller, mm-hmm. uh, those guys, Ewing. Patrick yeah. Ewing, did not win an NBA championship. Um, and I feel like not winning a championship was still a, a criticism back then. Yeah. But with, you know, social media now, you've got Twitter, you've got Facebook, you've got, um, you know, cable TV is a lot more prevalent with your sports centers, and you've got so many different people, so many, you know, and just... Uh, talking about the World Wide Web, you know, mm-hmm. online um, articles of, of people slamming you for your failures, you know. Right. There's, um, the criticism is such more, or so much more evident and in your face now right. than it was back in the day. So I feel like players are a lot more susceptible to trying to avoid that criticism now than they were back in the day. Totally. Yeah, I totally agree. Another, um, another interesting thing... Uh, I think that has changed as far as the NBA now versus, um, you know, back in the 80s and 90s is uh, the international talent pool. I believe 25% of the league is now um, from countries outside of the United States of America, which yeah. is, I think, very healthy for the league. Totally. Um, I think one of the big uh, things that led to that revolution was the Dream Team in 1992. Mm-hmm. You know, that team was so popular. Uh, fans yeah. all over the world loved watching that team. You know, that was the first Olympics where um, the U.S. was able to send the professional players, That's you know, right. so they put, like, <laughs> the collection of the, gra- the greatest players that were currently playing on the same team, mm-hmm. and that really, um, you know, helped with the popularity of the sport, and, you know, you see that now, you know, talking about 1992, uh, you know, the kids that were growing up at that time are now in the league, um, because they they saw the sport of basketball, they fell in love with it and started developing at a young age, uh, and now you see the league healthier than ever. For sure, um, the, like you said, the talent pool. You think of in the '90s how many great players potentially there could have been that you know whether China or Russia or wherever around the world that didn't get a chance to play, and of the the few standouts of the '90s because that's the era I know. Most I think of like uh, uh, Petrovic, who I can't. Oh remember yeah, Drazen Petrovic Drazen for the Petr- Nets. Yeah, he um, still talked about Reggie Miller. Talks about him as um, the best shooter that he has ever seen or ever mm-hmm. played um, in the same league with. And um, Sabonis, what's his first Arvidas name? Arvidas Sabonis. Arvidas Sabonis, who arguably is one of the the greatest centers or best centers to ever play. But because they didn't have an opportunity to really shine in the NBA because there wasn't that focus on international talent and, you know, the European leagues maybe were not on that level that they're on now because there wasn't that popularity, um, you know, Manu Ginobili may not have been able to be a star in the NBA without that, you know, international focus. Right. Yeah. And Arvidas Sabonis, he'll definitely be in our "What If" uh, episode whenever we get to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is a shame that uh, he he ended up coming into the NBA like when um, you know after he had had several injuries, including an Achilles injury, 
um, where he was just kind of a lumbering behemoth at that point. Right. And he was still effective. You mm-hmm. know, he was still a pretty good player, but he had lost most of his athleticism. He wasn't nearly the same guy right. uh, that he was in the 80s. But that's a really good point, too, is not only is there more talent now, but even the talent that is out there um, in the old days would stay in Europe. Now, a right. lot more are actually coming to the league and, and playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's made, you know, the Olympic sport of basketball um, a lot more entertaining as well because yeah. you actually have some countries. The United States is still, you know, the heavy favorite every time, but you've got countries like Spain specifically, Argentina, you know, for a right. time being with Ginobili and his, mm-hmm. his heyday um, that actually could compete and on their best day actually beat the United States. Right. Uh, so that's also very healthy uh, for the sport as a whole. And, and um, talking about the Dream Team, because the Dream Team was so dominant, I, I think it was the best collection of basketball players ever on one team ever. The, obviously, the 2008 or 2012. The Redeem Team was yeah, what they called themselves. The Redeem Team was also uh, extremely good as well and one of the best as well. But the reason they were the Redeem Team is because America didn't feel the need to send you know the best players every single year because, look, we're going to win regardless. And right. it's kind of mean to beat every team in the world by you know 70 points every time <laughs> when this is their the, their national team yeah so you know we would n- not send bad players Shaq went and won a gold medal and everything and but you send you it's not very organized you don't actually take it that seriously it's more like an open gym to them mm-hmm. and so when they actually get beat by these you know an Argentina team and these um their that talent level in 2004 up. Argentina upset them and won the gold exactly it's it I, I think it's not only healthy for international, but it's also healthy for America to, you know, because the Olympics with basketball was kind of, after 1992, was like, eh, you know, we're going to win. Who cares? Now it is actually, I think, worth watching because there's competition. You know, mm-hmm. there's a chance that we might lose. Um, we're still the heavy favorites, but I wouldn't be surprised, um, you know, like Yao Ming comes out of China, in my mind, like out of nowhere and is this amazing talent um, amazing physical specimen. How many more of those are out there? And right. looking to the future, that if you've got a young Yao Ming with a good team around him playing against the best of America, could be a decent matchup. I don't know. Well, and you've got Dirk Nowitzki, who has right. been, who is arguably the greatest international player of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, his influence on the game has been pretty profound in terms of a lot of the big men now we talk we've talked about how a lot of big men can shoot the basketball now and he was the prototypical example of right. a big man that was an amazing shooter and the fact that he was able to win a championship in 2011 as the best player on the Mavericks um, you know with a style of you know Charles Barkley was always against the jump shooting teams can never win a title <laughs> right but the fact that the best player on Dallas uh was primarily a jump shooter and they surrounded him with other jump shooters and they won right uh, i think was really good for the league and obviously that helped um lead towards what we see with golden state with and all style of that of play. yeah um that's that is a really good point that we probably didn't bring up before that international influence is also one of the huge factors in the style of play now yep. um because it's not just the american style of post up and you know high percentage shots 
you know that's it's kind yeah it's kind of the european style play i would describe as like the 2014 san antonio spurs where Mm -hmm. it's very team oriented there's not one player specifically that you can focus on as a defense and that makes it harder if all five guys are equally capable of beating you uh, it just makes it that much harder to uh, to defend now i i hesitate to bring this up because um not all international players do this um so it makes it sound like i'm giving it a bad rap but I think flopping, (laughs) Uh, this might be a larger conversation, but uh, I do, in soccer, and you know a lot more about soccer than than me, you watch Mm -hmm. it regularly, and you you said you just bought a new soccer game. Yeah, Pez 18 just came out yesterday, so I I play that quite a bit. That's that's awesome. I'm sure I'm going to get to see that after we're (laughs) done with this. Um, But with with soccer, there is a tendency sometimes to, uh, you know, act out a little bit and see if you can get the call mm-hmm. and in the 90s i think the best that i've ever seen is dennis rodman with that like uh, hooking people but making it actually look like you know you have to watch the replay to see oh wait no dennis is the one who started all of that contact yeah. but he could get the crowd and everyone to you know to go against them but now there is kind of that crackdown on um, is that an actual charge the person is taking or is that a, you know, is he flopping? Did he actually right. get fouled or is it, you know, James Harden, I watched a video of James Harden doing pick and rolls and jumping into the guy and hooking oh, yeah. people's arms and shooting it one handed. Yeah. It gets kind of ridiculous, but yeah, not that's... all international players do that. I just wanna... Speaking of, um, you know, we were talking earlier about what, um, era was more enjoyable to watch. Yeah. I personally enjoy watching this era a little bit more, and I, I mean, I enjoy both. Yeah. Um, but one of the downsides exactly. of today's game is what you just uh, outlined there, where, yeah, players are, um, you know, on their jump shot, they see a player that's on their right hip, and they jump right, right. and get and create all the contact themselves and get a call and go to the free throw line. Right. Um, you know, in, in this past season, you saw a lot of guys when they're coming off a pick and roll, you know, as the defender, if you're going over the top of the screen, uh, you're trying to be as close to that player as possible. Right. But then that player will just stop and go into their shooting motion, and there's no way as the defender to slow down your momentum in time before you crash into them, and it's yeah. just three foul shots. Yeah. Um, I certainly think, and, and to me, honestly, that stuff is a version of flopping. You know, yeah. but yes, uh, guys like even Madu Ginobili, Luis Scola mm-hmm. on that same Argentina team that won in 2004. Um, right. Uh, Anderson Varejao that played <laughs> for the Cavs, I feel like is a known flopper. Um, I think the league has done a decent job of yeah. cracking down in terms of they're giving, I think, $5,000 fines to anyone uh, when they watch the replay of the games if they notice you've flopped. Mm-hmm. They'll give you that fine, I think, which has helped significantly. Sure. Uh, but yeah, certainly um, when you've got a more eclectic group of people, they're going to add you know different flavors to exactly. the sport. Some positive, some negative. Right, and and I definitely because again, watching Dennis Robin, I picked up some some tricks on how to draw fouls and you know um, create contact and stuff. And it's not just international players. Reggie Miller was notorious for kicking his leg out after oh, yeah. a shot. To, mm-hmm. Tracy McGrady did that as well. Um, I remember watching Kobe, who grew up in Italy, and so maybe this is part of the influence, maybe not, but I remember watching him 
in I think the 2008 NBA Finals, and I saw him like rope people's arms into a shot when he's coming out. Oh up. yeah, and then Kevin Durant um, right. did that even more, and then they ended up changing the rule because of it. Right. But I, I get why players do it. Because mm-hmm. me as a player, um, I was still playing at that point in college. And I was like, wait, you can do that? Yeah. And as soon as I figured out, like, oh, wait, that's something you can do, I immediately you know, started figuring out how I could do that until they did the rule change. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, was, there anything, uh, was there anything else that was in your head you wanted to talk about? My, my background is actually in exercise science. I was a personal trainer for the past four and a half years back in Austin. Um, and that's why I was like feeling kind of unscientific with it. I can't think of anything, um, <laughs> but no, yeah, we'll, we'll probably come back to this topic at some point. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the reason we were able to get this started, as you mentioned, you were in Austin, Texas for a, a couple of years after college. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just recently moved back to the state of Ohio. So we're, mm-hmm. we're within about 35 minutes of each other. So yeah. it's a lot easier for us to get together and, and do stuff like this. So yeah. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully you all enjoyed listening to us talk and, uh, we're going to have more episodes uh, here to come. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This has been Duncan Dynasty. At Sandy Spring Bank, we care about people, not transactions. So we concentrate on creating personalized solutions to start or grow a business that provides for your family, to purchase a home that will house the memories you make there, to save so you can enjoy today and then pass on your legacy to future generations. We believe real banking is a conversation. Let's talk. Visit sandyspringbank.com real. Mortgage, home equity, and other credit products offered by Sandy Spring Bank.